Thank you so much, Darren Asimogli, for joining us. Darren is an institute professor at MIT, and I know he's also an elected fellow at a lot of academies, the National Academy of Sciences and the American Philosophical Society and the British Academy of Sciences, the Turkish Academy of Sciences, and I think the European Economic Association. So there's yes, uh, several, but no, no, nothing in Sweden, no, no, no Swedish society. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, unfortunately, we'll, maybe maybe the Nobel I'll invite you here. Yeah, and he's also an author of several books. The one that I recognize most is Why Nations Fail. And now he also has just written a new book that's coming out in a few few weeks. I have not yet been able to read that one, but I'm very, very curious to read it. It's called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And the book looks at like how much of our progress relies on the choices we make regarding technologies. It's a topic that is very dear to us here at Foresight Institute. And with this project, like the Existential Hope Project, this is something that we think about a lot. And yeah, very excited to talk to you about it. Welcome so much. Thank you. Thank you, Beatrice. Thank you, everybody, for being here. It's my honor to be present in the Existential Hope podcast. Yeah. So, well, let's get started. What are you working on? What got you like started on this track? Tell us. Well, I'll give you a sort of circuitous answer. I was drawn to economics because coming of age in Turkey in the 1980s, I sort of was curious about why some countries are able to generate prosperity, peace, employment for their populations and others aren't. And the relationship between that and what we might call power, politics, who holds social and political power in a society, democracy versus dictatorship. Turkey was under a military regime at the time. And that's what drew me to economics. I soon discovered economics wasn't, you know, about these questions at first. Still, I thought it was fun. So I pursued and then I came back to these issues. And this is what led me to write, for example, the book, Why Nations Fail with John Robinson and the research that underpins it. But on the side, I was still sort of very much also interested in technology issues, and I had some academic works on those. And and recently, those two strands started coming together because with advances in automation, AI, digital technologies, social media, it became quite apparent to everybody, I think, but to me also, that these technologies were transforming our society. They were creating huge winners and huge losers. And they were redistributing power in society in a way that I think Western nations haven't experienced for quite a while. And I also thought that, at least in the United States, where I am, the attitude was too much colored by a form of techno-optimism. Not that people were naive and not seeing some of the costs that new technologies could create or did create, But they were optimistic that somehow we would work through them, that we would find ways of building better societies with these powerful tools. And and I thought that history doesn't teach us that. History teaches us that we've been sometimes successful and sometimes unsuccessful, and we cannot take the success granted for granted, especially when we're dealing with such different, such transformative new technologies. And that new book with Simon Johnson, Power and Progress, 
our thousand years struggle over technology and prosperity came out of that. And a lot of things that I'm doing right now are, are related. I'm working more on the labor market consequences, how we can create better technologies for workers, looking at how we can make democracy work better in the digital age, and and also sort of more broadly about controlling AI. How do we do that? And I think these are all topics that are very close to the existential hope sort of agenda, because the way I would say it in one last sentence, I am very worried about our future, but I'm also hopeful that if we do the right things, there are amazing tools in our hands that we can build a better future, but that better future will have to start with humans. It has to start with appreciating the diverse skills that humans have, the diverse voices that they have and should not be sidelined. And I think that gives me the agenda of we need to redirect technological change in a way that prioritizes humans. That's not the path we are on now, but I quite believe, I believe very much that it's a feasible path. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I am very curious to hear more on on what you think we can do to to make this go well, basically, because it is a challenge. So could you maybe share your perspective on what we can do to ensure as much as possible that technological advancements can lead to more prosperity rather than yeah. disparity? Well, every new technology creates dangers and challenges. I mean, we are quite familiar with how we have taken some of the most inspiring technologies and turned them into horrible things. You know, Fritz Haber and Carl Bosch worked out a revolutionary technology of turning atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia, which is absolutely critical for our ability to feed 8 billion, 9 billion people today. We would not be able to do one-tenth of that without synthetic fertilizers. But then Immediately, they turned around and they created more powerful bombs to kill hundreds of millions of people with them. So what do we do with our knowledge? We can create bombs. We can create ways of creating, generating more inequality. We can come up with new ways of spreading misinformation or destroying democracy, or we can try to build a better society. So I'm not one of those who is worried about super intelligent AI coming and destroying humanity. Of course, we cannot rule that out. That's not my main concern. My main concern is more mundane uses of technology in ways that creates more inequality, both in the economic and the political spheres. So I think, what can we do to build a better future? I think any answer, any question like that, you should, one should, or at least I find it useful to Think of the answers at two levels. One is at aspirational level and the other one at the level of levers. The aspirational level, what are we trying to achieve? And the levers is what are the specific policies we can leverage in order to achieve those aspirations. And often when we're dealing with such difficult problems, levers are a little shaky. When you first were hearing about climate change problems, greenhouse gas emissions in the 1970s. I think it was, it would not have been feasible for us to come up with specific levers of how to deal with them. But already people who were foresighted understood the aspirations that we need different ways of generating energy and, 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 and combating global warming. So let me start with the aspirations and then we can come to the levers. So for aspirations, I think we want to have technologies that 
empower and increase the productivity of humans with diverse skills. What do I mean by that? Think of what you can do with new digital technologies and what we have done with digital technologies. We've done a lot of automation, for example, that does not increase human productivity. It sidelines humans. Some amount of automation is useful. We have to do it. It's been part of our history. But it's not in and of itself empowering humans. We can create digital platforms such as Facebook or TikTok in which we become glued our attention and our responsibility is in the hands of somebody who serves us a diet of entertainment rather than we acting as citizens. Again, that's not empowering humans. Empowering humans with diverse backgrounds, diverse voices means that we all as citizens become informed about important social choices. What should we do with AI? What should we do about globalization and the tensions between China and U.S. All of these things, I think citizens should be informed about it, but the current use of digital technologies is not doing that. Current use of digital technologies is not increasing human productivity. So that's the redirection of technological change that I think is feasible. That's my aspiration. We use digital technologies to increase human productivity. Teachers can be much more productive, not eliminate teachers, but make them more productive. Nurses can become much more capable. They can do diagnosis, prescriptions, <coughs> care much more effectively than they are at the moment in every country, especially the United States. But that requires new tools. We can make electricians, manual workers more productive, and we can make citizens understand issues and communicate in a more democratic environment using a pluralistic structure of participating in democratic discourse. Those are aspirations. That's not where we are right now, but those aspirations, I think, are meaningful. And one way you can see that they are meaningful, it's not a proof, but one way you can see that meaningful is that at many points in early history of computers, internet, social media, people had exactly those aspirations. Early pioneers of computers in the 1960s and 70s at MIT, Berkeley, San Francisco, thought that computers would empower workers and citizens and and would be the sort of the end of large centralized corporations such as IBM. That's not what happened. IBM became much more powerful. Microsoft became much more powerful than IBM. We've centralized information. We've centralized production. But it, that was an aspiration that I think wasn't crazy. Early days of social media and the internet, people thought this was going to create a more democratic discourse. Again, that's not what happened, but those ideas were not crazy. So we can go back to them. But that's where the levers come in. And I think that's, there's much more, that's much more open to debate, which levers we can use for that. Do you want to suggest or guide us through any of the current levers that you see? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's no silver bullet as far as I'm concerned, but I think what we need to do is create better regulation and induce large tech companies to change their business model. What I mean by that is their business model, it's a combination of different companies doing different things, but the business model is centered on automation. You supply tools for large companies so that they can cut labor costs. And it is based on collecting a lot of data and using digital advertising. So it's like a manipulative system. That's the, that's where all the profits are at the moment. That's the majority of Facebook's, Google's profits come from. Microsoft is going in that direction with Bing and GPT. 
but that's not the only business model. So I think the question is, how can we come encourage these companies to use a different business model? How can we encourage these companies to prioritize also creating tools for workers, not just for managers to so to monitor workers or automate work, but can we create new tasks, new human capabilities out of these amazing tools that we have available? I mean, techno-optimists have one thing right. We are in the midst of the most mind-boggling advances in technologies that we have been in for several generations. The question is, what do we do with these tools? So I think that's where we have to use the levers and the regulations in order to create better practices. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I guess the the main question right now that as sort of seeps through all of this is like AI and its implications. I I often find when I talk to people that they're quite hesitant to regulation of any sort when it comes to technology. Do you see a way sort of past that? Like how do we convince them that this is the way forward? Well, I think you are completely right. And that is for several reasons. And we we also have to understand why is it that people are averse to regulation. And we also have to articulate, and I believe that's actually the easy part, why regulation is key. So let me start with that last question. Take social media. I think we have seen the really ugly face of what can happen on social media. People becoming addicted, mental health problems, multiplying extremists, forming very powerful communities that then spread misinformation, becoming viral. And all of these were at first defended by large companies saying, you have to let information wants to be free. We don't want to interfere with people's communication. And this is the natural next step of the technology. And now I think almost every executive from big tech companies, at least in public pronouncements or in my conversations, they all say, yes, of course, we need regulation. We accept we need regulation. But it's too late. We've already created a delay, a disadvantage for regulatory tools as the the ecosystem became much worse than it should have been. And what's true for social media, I think, is doubly true for AI. How you can use generative AI, large language models, for creating more centralized information, more control, more monitoring, more deep fakes and misinformation. I think those are just endlessly powerful ways of doing good things and doing bad things. And the same applies when you start using these tools for the production process as well. Is it okay to fire a large number of workers without knowing how generative AI is going to work? I think, again, there are questions here that we want to sort of debate before we just go ahead and rush and say, oh, no, no, regulation can come later. So why is that we are so averse to regulation? I think there are three reasons for it. One is that tech companies have are very powerful and have spent large amounts of money and they have used, they have leveraged their social influence to lobby against regulation. Second, 
competition with China. It's both true, but it's also a <clears throat> sort of a tricky argument to say, well, you can't regulate AI because if you do, that creates a disadvantage for U.S. industry or European industry, and the Chinese will go or surge ahead. And the third is, we just don't know how to regulate it. These technologies are complex. Bureaucrats don't know, don't understand them. And I think all three of these are problematic. The first one is obviously problematic. It's exactly the same that thing that happened with tobacco companies opposing regulation of smoking or the fossil fuel producers saying, no, no, there is no climate change and you cannot interfere with energy markets. These are people who have billions of dollars on the line and they don't want government's interference. The China argument, yes, there is some element of truth, but we are seeing that China is nowhere to be seen in large language models. So we could have slowed down large language models. That would not have created an advantage for China. And in fact, I think better regulation in the West, if it happens, would also influence, would also put Chinese AI research on a better path. And then finally, yes, it is true today, we don't have the human capital in the European or American bureaucracy to create a <laughs> smart regulation. But that's an outcome of 30, 40 years of neglect. The sense of mission has been destroyed in bureaucracy. The talented people have all been offered three, four, five times, 10 times higher salaries in the private sector. And regulation has been maligned. Ronald Reagan, who is a social democrat, really, compared to people on the right today, you know, used to go around and say the, 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 the 10 scariest words in the English language are, I am from the government, I'm here to help. So when you have that ideology that really demoralizes any type of civil service and you erode your capacity to undertake regulation. So I think we need to build that capacity. Yeah, I mean, I'm based in Europe, so I hear a lot about the EU AI Act right now. And when I speak to people in the US about it, they they seem to think that it'll only put Europe behind and oh, Europe is going to lose. But in Europe, I think that's people kind of believe that, yeah, that's probably true. But they also believe in this Brussels effect that maybe that will slow down progress elsewhere, just so that we can have some time to get get our ducks in a row a bit more. But I want us to talk about other things as well. But the last thing I want to ask about regulation is, do you think we have time to do this in time for transformative AI? I don't know what your current like timeline is for when we'll have that, but are we? do we have time to, to regulate? Yes, we do. I mean, we can create more time, but, you know, as long as we are alive as humans, resourceful as ever, we can come up with solutions. But I was a signatory to the letter, open letter, that asked for a six-month pause to the training of large language models, precisely because I think we need more time to plan the regulation. And I was also impressed by the people who were coming together at the early stages as potential signatories and broad coalition, which is, I think, what we need and what we need to build for thinking about the next stage of regulation. So, yes, I think time is running out, but we have no option but act now. It's a very difficult problem. I mean, I think I'm glad, Beatrice, that you mentioned the European experience. I think European experience demonstrates the good and the bad. GDPR, for example, was a brilliant idea, completely necessary, 
very important problem. And Europeans deserve full credit. European Commission deserves full credit for being ahead of the curve. But it completely backfired. We're probably worse off because of GDPR. I'm not going to blame the European bureaucrats for that because I don't think anybody could have done better. Because it's a difficult problem and they were the first. So you make mistakes, you learn, you build more human capital. That's how you have to go. I think what I would blame the Europeans is still not revising GDPR despite all of the apparent problems. Yeah, I, with all new technologies, there definitely seems to be a trial and error process. There's that quote from Max Tegmark that I always like, where he's, well, first we got fire and our houses burned down, but we learned to put it out and have fire controls and we got cars. And that was dangerous. And then we got seatbelts. And so, yeah, there's always like this really brave process. Do you, it would be interesting to hear if you have any examples of historically where you think we have been able to work successfully with harnessing technology for good. I think you mentioned that you think historically we haven't been great at it. I think we, it's been a struggle. I think our past is filled with examples where we have not done great, but then there are many episodes also in which we've sort of stumbled onto something better. Let me give three examples of partial success, but out of the jaws of early defeat, early disaster. Industrial revolution. I think today we owe everything that we have in terms of health, comfort, high living standards to the process that started in the Industrial Revolution. But the first 100 years of that was horrible. Poverty deepened, real wages stagnated, working conditions worsened, working hours lengthened, diseases became much worse. In British cities, life expectancy fell, at birth fell to something like low 30s because so many people were dying in disease-infected, infested dwellings. Living conditions worsened, and power became much more unequal. Companies, bosses, the already existing elite became richer, socially more powerful. People became real second-class citizens in their own country. But then a process of reform started. Political reform, bureaucratic reform, that's the age when the British government started trying to clean up its act, hire people who were experts, and then clean up the cities, improve the health system, build an education system, sewage systems, hospitals got built. Technology became redirected. Instead of just trying to monitor and sideline labor, you started having new technologies and new industries and occupations that increase worker productivity. Unions started becoming, becoming organized and legal. In the 1800s, early 1800s, because being a unionist, not just calling a strike, but being a unionist was punishable by jail. So all of these things leveled the playing field in a more democratic, more equal, and technologically more dynamic country. So this, this did not happen with a roadmap. Somebody didn't come up and said, here is a, the way we can reshape technology. But there were many movements that 
contributed to that. For example, the Chartists who campaigned in the 1840s for universal voting rights. Many reformers who tried to improve working conditions, living conditions, health conditions. Second example, nuclear power. Nuclear power was a technology. It was a very powerful technology. Today, we can use a lot more of it in our efforts to reduce climate change, in my opinion. But then immediately as that technology became available, the first application of it was to build nuclear weapons. And most of the leading physicists of the era worked on that. And then it take, took a while for physicists to realize, actually, that wasn't a good thing to do for them to do. And a code of conduct, and while many physicists developed where they refused to work on nuclear powers, and they were a conduit for the broader population to become involved and informed about what nuclear power, nuclear weapons were about, and anti-nuclear weapon, more peaceful use of nuclear technology, I think, owe very much to those efforts of responsible use of scientific knowledge. Radio. Radio, before it became regulated, was a potent tool in the hands of Nazis or extremist groups for propaganda. And then both the population and the regulation, both of them adjusted people and started understanding not everything you hear on the radio is true. And regulators started discussing how airwaves should be allocated, what what is allowed, what is libel, what is who has access to these radio resources. So it was, again, a process. Is it a perfect one? No, none of those are perfect. But but I think we've developed ways of using technologies in more responsible ways in a number of occasions. We can do that again. Yeah, I, I believe in the books that you have a sort of manifesto. Is there is there anything that you can share from that manifesto? Well, I mean, I think I wouldn't call it quite a manifesto, but... The way I would say is this an aspiration. The aspiration is this, what I said, which is using technology, redirecting technology for for creating more worker-friendly, more human-friendly, more democracy-friendly technologies. And then we suggest a number of steps. Each one of them is partial, but subsidies for better, more productive uses of technology or developments of technology, changes in the organization of the tech industry. So you have more, less domination of a few business models and a few companies. We call for a digital ad tax because I think some of the worst, more anti-democratic uses of data collection and technology are fueled by individualized targeted ads, which bring out the worst uses of these technologies and, and also limits on data, the ability of tech companies to sweep up data without paying for it, without asking permission, without any regulation, I think is contributing to the wrong type of ecosystem and the wrong type of the development and use of these technologies. Yeah. Are are there any current initiatives or movements that you think align with this vision? Well, I think uh, nothing that's, I would call a powerful movement yet, but on each one of them, there, there, there are... Uh, there are things happening. So another one that we discuss in the book, which I think is important, I, I think it's not going to be a silver bullet, but also we have to think about breaking up the largest tech companies. So on that, for instance, the Biden administration's Department of Federal Trade Commission and DOJ are considering whether antitrust 
has been violated in some of the mergers. And that's one sort of movement where it can happen. There have been a number of people ask, calling for digital ad taxes. That has not become a reality yet, but I think there will be more calls for it. The computer scientist, Jerome Lanier, was a pioneer in suggesting that data should be treated as labor and there should be data unions. I think there is a movement around him that's forming. I think that's very encouraging. So yes, I think there is some grumbling in many different spheres, but let's see where that takes us. So I believe in in the book on why nations fail, you speak of that there are like inclusive institutions and that's that leads to more successful nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you also have a thought on how we can create like a more inclusive innovation ecosystem around AI technologies or technologies? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. I mean, I think both we need an inclusive institutions and their survival and we need an inclusive ecosystem. And I think an inclusive ecosystem for innovation to me means many different diverse voices, different approaches. And I, if you think of the successes of innovation in the past, it has been encouraged when people have used different approaches, different ideas. When there is a centralized solution imposed on innovation, it doesn't work very well. And in the past, the major concern that people had for that was governments. Governments tell you this is technology is good, this technology is bad, and that could be a problem. But why is it any different if you have a very large company telling you this is the technology that we're going to go with, this is the way we're going to structure that technology? So that's part of the antitrust drive. I think antitrust, I think of it not as so much because you want to worry about prices. Yes, you want to worry about that, but you want to also worry about the innovation process. And I think all of that is going to be worse with the generative AI movement, because the chances are, I think that would be my guess at the moment, that we're going to have a couple of base models, such as GPT-4, and and it's going to be those companies that control the base models that are going to make the most profits, and they're going to shape the future of this technology. Applications are going to be layered on top of these base models. So if that's the case, the innovation ecosystem will become even less inclusive. And this is not an accident, by the way. If you look at the US, the same is true to a lesser extent in Europe. These large tech companies, and more broadly, large companies, have been extremely active over the last 20, 25 years in acquiring all of their competitors. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, they have acquired dozens of companies that could have turned into competitors to them. Some of them are then incorporated into their products. Others are just left aside. We don't want them as competitors. Their technology could die. So that is a process that is a conscientious effort to create a less inclusive innovation system. (laughs) Yeah, I. what in terms of beginning this process of trying to make it more inclusive how how do you think we can like what roles should governments corporations individuals play in this democratization that's a great question again i will give a high level answer because i don't have the more detailed here is a blueprint here is a manifesto but first of all we need to change the narrative and that's where my aspirations come in 
I think the narrative in the U.S. is still <clears throat> there are geniuses who are designing wonderful technologies. We should respect them and let them do whatever they want because that's our future. That's completely the wrong narrative. Whenever you leave technology in the control of a few people, it is disastrous. It has been disastrous in history. And technologies often create winners and losers. We have to sort of think about that. We need to create a bigger debate around which technologies we want, how we're going to redirect it, which technologies are useful socially, which ones are not, which technologies are creating just wealth for a few entrepreneurs, and which ones are creating benefits for workers and citizens. Second, we need to create new institutions. This is where technology could help, but it's actually a really political process. <laughs> what I mean by that is, is that we need to have the right structure for countervailing voices to be heard. It's not that we don't, we can't have a world in which every technology that Google invents, only Google is responsible about how it should be used because they are its inventors. So regulation is about creating incentives for companies, how they use their technology, which technologies they market, which technologies they take in a different direction, and which of the many paths open to technological change we actually pursue. So that means that we need this new regulatory environment, and that cannot be just something that the government does from the top. So it's like society's input into that is necessary. That's part of the narrative changing, the debate changing, broader set of conversations need to be around. And then we need to have very specific policies. Like I mentioned, digital ad taxes. How do you implement that? What's the right level of digital ad taxes? So that's a, that's a technocratic question. So we need to develop the technocratic expertise. I gave the example of GDPR, general data regulation, privacy regulation, and data privacy regulation. And why did that go wrong? Because the experts who designed it didn't know enough. They couldn't have known enough about how large tech companies would develop and respond to it. So we need to develop, we need to build better expertise in order to be able to do that sort of regulation. Yeah, I think that the narrative, Fred, is one that I want to pull out a bit more because that fits very much into this existential hope theme. And so... Just, I want to ask you a few questions. Of course. Relating to that. So I think one of the the first thing that I want to ask is, would you say that you're optimistic about the future? And if so, why? And if not, why? Well, that is always a very difficult question for me because my whole belief about technology, about institutions and about the future is that there isn't one preordained path. Technology is highly malleable. We can develop it in many, many different ways, in good and bad. Institutions, we can build better institutions, we can build worse institutions, we can build a better future, worse future. So, yes, I'm hopeful we have the capacity to build a much better future. But no, I'm very worried that on our current path, we are heading towards a very bad future. So, the question then becomes, how can we get out of this bad future? And how likely are we to get out of it? So I think not very likely, meaning that it's not an automatic process and we really need to pull our resources together as humans, as world citizens, in order to 
tackle these questions. It's not something easy, especially in today's polarized environment and when geopolitical risks are high. Inequality, polarization have reached alarming proportions in most countries around the world, in most industrialized countries at the very least. So, yes, we're not starting from a position that makes me think, oh, yeah, we're going to need, we're going to be able to do this easily. No, it's not easy, but I'm still hopeful. Yeah, thank you. I So, it, it, I mean, in general, it seems hard for people to to f- see positive futures or envision positive mm-hmm. futures, mm-hmm. whereas like these more dystopian visions are easier for us to imagine because we seem, I think, more, <laughs> more ways for it to go wrong than to go right. So I take it, I, I interpret your answer to be that you think we should change this, but do you yes. have any thought on how? Well, that's, those were the issues that I was trying to touch upon earlier on. We need to change the narrative. We need to articulate aspirations and we need to have a debate about them and we need to develop an alternative narrative to just let a handful of very smart people and very powerful companies shape the future. Then we need to build the institutions for being able to do that, to support that. And then we need to build the policies that can create the more micro, fine-tuned incentives for achieving those objectives. None of that is easy, but I think all of them are feasible. And they've been done before. They have been done before. Yeah, I... Well, maybe then in, in terms of coming up with a narrative, if we want to change it, would you be able to share like an existential hope vision for the future that you yourself have? Yes, I think an existential hope future is the following. Here are two very opposed views of humanity. One, which I think is never admitted, but is all implicitly held by many people, that humans are fallible, full of mistakes, full of imperfections. And the more we can correct the humans or sideline them, the better. That means automating. That means taking initiative away from the humans. Auto, uh, automate decisions, automate production processes, spoon feed them because they're going to make mistakes. Let them have less voice about the future of technology, the future of government, because democracy doesn't work. And the alternative is that humans are amazingly resourceful. They have diverse skills, and each one of these skills is very valuable. The skills of the gardener, the skills of the manual craftsman, the skills of the construction worker, or the skills of the computer designer, all of those are hugely valuable. And the my hope for the future is that we build technologies that elevates these skills without devaluing any of them makes people more capable of developing and using those skills, whether they want to be a gardener, carpenter, electrician, manual worker, nurse, academic. They can be more productive, more capable with technologies. And we build a society that values the contributions of these diverse skills, not just whoever can build the largest company and scoop up most data and make billions of dollars, he is the only or she's the only valuable one and everybody else is less valuable. So that's the scary scenario for me. And I think the alternative is a very hopeful but also feasible one. 
I, I think one way, because it seems like then the, the sort of extension of hope vision is one of diversity. And the, so one thing that would be interesting, I don't know if you thought about this at all, but I mean, seems that we may be heading towards more also cooperation between like humans and AI agents and perhaps, yeah, just non-human sentience, even maybe even sentient actors that we have to cooperate with. Do you see that as a, as a positive part of the vision as well? Or is it like... No, I don't see that as a positive part, nor am I really that hopeful that we're going to create sentient machines. I don't think the current approach in the field is really capable of generating true sentience. I think that's also a, a tangent as far as I'm concerned. I wrote an article about two years, three years ago in Washington Post saying that the AI we should fear is not in the future, but it's here. And I still subscribe to that, even though there have been many other developments in AI. We shouldn't be, what we should be fearing is not super intelligent, sentient AI or, or humanoid robots, but it's the bad users of AI that we are com- very capable of doing at the moment with our given technologies. So in that sense, the sentience is not a critical factor for my thinking. Yeah. I, in terms of then the, because one of the, the things that that relates to is like this concept of, existential risk and unaligned AGI being an existential risk, do you think, because it it seems like there's this, there's the issue of, for example, the workforce is going to drastically change with the AI coming and automation that you discussed. So how would you weigh those changes that I think we kind of know are coming versus these more speculative, potentially existential risk Challenges. Well, if I believe that there was a real existential risk of AGI that will run out of control and then enslave or destroy full humanity, of course, I would be very worried. So I don't think that's a major issue. But I also, because I don't think it's a major issue, emphasizing that too much, I think, walks into the narrative that these AI technologies are amazing. And the only thing we fear is that they are too capable. Rather, I think the conversation should be about how we're using our imperfect technologies, which are quite powerful in doing certain things, even if they cannot be sentient. And we start the power and progress by quoting from H.G. Wells's Time Machine. And what he understood, says in the Time Machine, therefore he understood, I presume, something that we forget, we have forgotten completely that technology is not a way for humans to control nature only. Of course, it does. We use technology to control nature. But technology is often a way for some humans to control other humans. And it is that part that I worry about. The AGI discussion says, oh, what about technology controlling humans? Yeah, that could happen too, perhaps in some future date, but that's much less real and much less present than humans using technology to control other humans. Yeah, if if we go back to this positive existential hope vision that you shared, is there anything, any particular breakthrough in the next five years that would tell you that we're on track to getting to this 
positive scenario? Well, I think we have to first rebound from where we are. We first have to show, in much of the West especially, that democracy works. If you look at data, the current young generation has lost confidence and trust in democratic institutions. And I think democracy is the only way we can both elevate the human dignity, human skills, human judgment that I've talked about, but also we can control the future of technology. Of course, you can have the Chinese Communist Party control the future of technology, but that's worse or as bad as Google and Facebook controlling the future of technology. It's as centralized, it's as biased in what it tries to do with technology, and it's as much about control, different types of control, but control. So we need democracy to work, otherwise we have no options. So the first thing we need to show ourselves and the world that democracy can be made to work. And look at the situation in the United States, look at the situation in Europe. We're having a real hard time with democracy, and the young generation is responding to it by saying, oh, well, I'm not so sure democracy is such a great system anymore. So that's the first thing we have to do. Safeguarding democracy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Easier Uh, said than done, right? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So I want to ask one question, which is very similar to one that I asked before. I just want to see, like, in this podcast, we always ask for an example of a U catastrophe. So that's the opposite of a catastrophe. So an event where after it's happened, the expected value of the world is much higher. Would would you have an example of a U catastrophe that you wish to see other than what you just said, like safeguarding democracy? Or- yeah, no, I think I think those, I mean, safeguarding democracy, showing that we can sort of turn these technologies to help workers and citizens. Look, I mean, if you go back in the past, there are amazing events like antibiotics that have really completely changed some subset of tasks that we perform, like saving people who have infections, expanding, extending lives. I think there are many more of those that we can create with our new tools, but we first need to redirect those tools for that purpose. Yeah, I'm going to take... Some questions from the audience now. I have. That'd be great. I would love to. Yeah, I have one from Matias. Matias, do you want to say your question? Sure. Hello. Let me just pull it up again. Yeah. So one of the things I was wondering at the beginning is sort of so a lot of technology that I think people sort of come up with kind of it's sort of great, but it kind of has only a modest sort of social impact. If you go to a hospital, there are all kinds of medical procedures that have a lot of sort of fancy technology, but in terms of like the social impact, it might just be like an improved treatment for a rare condition. When it comes to technology, like what what are sort of the things to look out for? Or sort of how do you think about technologies that really have this potential to have this kind of massive social impact? I think that's a great question. In fact, I think there are very few examples of technologies that one, just like one product or one technique is so transformative. Even antibiotics, even without antibiotics, with all the other health improvements, we would be okay. The way that I think about it is a platform. We create platforms for generating families of techniques, families of new products, families of new practices, and together they really lift us up. 
And so what are those platforms or what are these general purpose technologies? Early industrial growth in the 20th century, for example, was fueled by creating a template, which, for example, is exemplified by Ford Motor Factories. You introduce more machinery, high-powered energy electricity, centralized electricity, but at the same time, you bring engineers, maintenance workers, new tasks, better record-keeping, better product design. And that was that whole ecosystem that then spread throughout manufacturing and undergirded a lot of the improvements that we had until the 1980s. So we need to create the equivalent of that with digital technologies. Thanks. Thank you. I also have a question from David. Do you want to ask your question, David? Yeah, thank you so much for speaking. This was great. You've said a number of times that there are risks that you're not concerned about or you don't think are plausible, sentient AI or existential risk from AI. And I wanted to know, are you saying that you think that those things are fundamentally impossible or that they're unlikely this decade or that they're unlikely this century? Is this a time frame question or a fundamental impossibility question? Great question. And of course, we cannot know what the future will hold. But on the current architecture, and I think many AI scientists will disagree with me on this, but on the current architecture of digital technologies and AI, I do not see anything approaching artificial general intelligence. And I don't see the current architecture changing in the next decade or beyond. So I don't see anything that could approach artificial general intelligence for, I would say, 30, 40 years at least. But there's another deeper reason why I'm not worried about that per se, and this is how I would express it. Here is a claim. You may disagree with this claim. But my claim is any technology that could be proto-AGI could be misused horribly in the hands of the humans that control it well before we can get to AGI. If the there is a sentient superintelligence that controls and destroys humanity, that's horrible. But if Mr. X controls a much more rudimentary version of it and he destroys humanity, that's as bad as far as I'm concerned. So I'm much more worried about that latter for that reason. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. So the last question from the audience, I'll let Brad ask his question also. So in the area of speech regulation and regulation of social media, it is commonly felt that one of the main reasons that liberal democracies forbid censorship in the United States, perhaps most of all, is not that speech isn't harmful and not that speech systems can't cause harm, but because we've never found a way to give the keys to anyone to control them that didn't end up causing more harm. So sometimes, I apologize, you're a little bit facile, I think, in suggesting that we can just find these good regulations when that's actually the key challenge. So how do you address that? I completely agree. I'm very uncomfortable giving the keys to anybody. But the way that I think we have dealt with some of those problems in the past is that when there is a broad and well-tested consensus on certain things, we have implemented them as regulations. So, for example, the German Federal Republic created a broad consensus about Nazism, 
and Nazi speech being not allowed on the airways. So I think that's the sort of societal bottom-up process that is necessary for the regulation spaces. It's not an easy process, but I completely agree with you. I would not be comfortable with a president or with a political party deciding what's allowed speech and what's not allowed speech. But I will add to it that right now we are essentially delegating that power to large tech companies. So, for example, if you look at ChatGPT, ChatGPT has been extensively trained by using reinforcement learning before it was launched because they were afraid that it would say certain things that are politically incorrect. So a bunch of engineers in a in a small company decided what is allowed speech, what is not allowed speech. And by using state-of-the-art reinforcement learning techniques, they discourage ChatGPT from saying those words. So that's not lack of regulation. That's just backroom regulation that we're not monitoring. We're not getting convention. We're not getting a consensus on, and we're not getting the democratic means exercised on. So I don't see that as better. So to say we're not going to regulate, we're going to allow all free speech. That's not what we're doing right now as default either. But you seriously suggest that one could have applied a regulatory regime on something like ChatGPT before it was released in the way it was. That there's any other path other than OpenAI deciding how they want to release the early version of the product? Well, there is. There is another. I think the problem in the case of ChatGPT was created from its architecture because it's trained from the entire or close to entire corpus of the internet, especially social media. It Its da- training data was full of very low quality information. So imagine why your, 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 your why sentient, so your sentient intelligence is coming from Reddit. It's going to have horrible information. So we've created one problem and then we try to create, we solve that through another imperfect means that then empowers other people to say, to decide what is allowed and what is not allowed. What I'm trying to say is that there is no alternative to a democratic debate about these issues and delegating it to a handful of companies is may appear from one point of view as, oh, we're allowing free speech, but it's very far from free speech. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Darren. I, if you have one more minute, I want to ask you some rapid questions before we end. Go for it. So the first thing is just what would you recommend someone, you wanting to work on contributing to a positive future, what should they specialize in? Oh, I think my perspective about diverse human skills, everybody should specialize in whatever I think they are passionate about. But I think we should all be well-informed. I think we should all read more broadly about how we can build a better society, How what are the alternative paths around us so that we have a broader perspective. We don't want everybody to be the same. We want everybody to have their own diverse skills, but we want to have common understanding of what our sensibilities are. That's yeah. That that makes sense. And what in terms of recommendations for resources? Would you say there's anything you find particularly interesting that they should read or listen to or or watch? I think there are so many amazing <clears throat> books that question our understanding, our our cherished notions. I would recommend, for example, Michael Sandel's Tyranny of Merit as a corrective to meritocracy where we built a meritocracy and if it's generating a lot of inequality, we have to live with it. 
I think we have to question those things. We have to question about the future of technology. I think we're all very excited, rightly so, about the new advances in generative AI, but there are many counter voices that we have to listen to. I think generally, just there is a lot of different perspectives. We just have to be open to them. Thank you. So the last question I will ask you is, what is the best advice that you ever received? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what is the best advice. I think probably an advice that I didn't receive directly, but a general encouragement that I got from my parents and some of my friends to just pursue my passions. I think if you're too strategic about what you want to study, what you want to work on, you will never realize your dreams. You have to really pursue what you're passionate about. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you for coming and excited to read your book, Power and Thank Power. you, Beatrice. Thank you, everybody, for being here. 